most original and creative talent in our business, would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to another episode of Orson Welles. This uh, commentary, I thought I would go ahead and present myself because my team is a little behind on our commentaries, which is fine. But this one is unique in that it's kind of in my wheelhouse. I think most of you know that I'm an educator and uh, a school counselor. And uh, this episode talks a little about teacher salary. It's interesting. They were talking about how teacher salaries should be higher back then. Uh, I will say that teacher salaries have only recently uh, really climbed to the point of where um, they're a decent salary now. And uh, there's still nothing compared to myself. Well, for instance, my son just graduated and... Uh, he will, on his very first paycheck, make uh, not quite double what I make, but I guess 50% higher than what I make now, and and that's uh, being 30 years, 30 plus years into my career. So kind of interesting how uh, different careers are definitely worth a different amount of money. Uh, the other thing that he'll go into today is comic books, and uh, I think most of you realize that I'm kind of a comic book fan, and... Um, and uh, this gets into how comic books are so bad and, and all of that. Um, interesting that in 1946 he would be saying this because comic books really in 46 were still mostly the superhero comics and things. Uh, they're just starting to go into a darker realm that they'll really sink into in the next, in 47, 48, up to about 1950. They'll, uh, that's where you get the horror comics and EC comics. Um, it goes from being educational comics to being entertainment comics. And uh, when they do when they do that switch over, they have Tales from the Crypt and uh, uh, all the different horror titles that they have. Um, and they have crime suspense stories and all of that, uh, which are interesting to read for an adult. But for kids, yeah, I can totally see how they would be out of place. Uh, I just think it's interesting and wonder what Orson would think of the fact that for over a decade now, the tentpole movies have been almost exclusively superhero films that are making the most money and that have the most people going out to see them based on the comic books. And uh, it's just an interesting world we live in and interesting that 75 years ago, Orson will be making uh, this commentary. So I hope you're going to enjoy this episode and hear a little bit about some subjects that we haven't heard before with Orson talking about. And we'll see you next time, hopefully, with my whole team. Enjoy. This is Orson Welles, come to call for another visit about people and the things they're doing all over the world. Among other things, we're going to talk today about comic books, of all things. We'll get to that in just a minute. People who know refer to Lear as the name men fly by. The reason is Lear has been famous for fine aircraft radios for more than 16 years. 
Lear radios are flying the airways from coast to coast and from Alaska to the tip of South America. Very soon now, you'll be able to buy a Lear home radio built with all the skill and unusual craftsmanship that have developed through years of this unique experience. It will be a radio replete with the very latest developments radio has to offer. For example, there's sound on tape recording. It's like wire recording, but many steps ahead. Tape costs less, and unlike wire recording, the tape does not have to be rewound. You can play what you record right back. Recordings you cherish, you can keep for a lifetime. Anything you don't want, you erase from the tape simply by recording something else on it. Sound on tape is just one feature you will find on Lear home radios. So watch for the name Lear, L-E-A-R. Now back to Orson Welles. We send you a radio if you send us a letter we can use on this program. And this week, a radio, a five-tube table model made by Leah, goes to Mrs. Frances Izell, who lives in Hollywood, Florida. This letter, she writes, is about a subject that you'll probably agree with, but won't think tactful to discuss on the air. But it's one which I, as both a mother and a magazine agent, can speak about with authority. It's these trashy, cheap, and often depraved magazines that are coming into our homes and very definitely into the lives and thoughts of our children. These magazines, which hide under the name of comics. I've known at least three concrete examples of bodily harm to children as the result of their reading them. If mother forbids them in the house, junior reads them at a neighbor's or at a corner drugstore. I've heard a juvenile court judge in a large city say that they're a contributing cause to juvenile delinquency. Have you any suggestion? Well, Mrs. Izell, I don't like comic books any more than you do, but I don't like censorship either. How about a national boycott of all places that sell that sort of book by the Parent Teachers Association and other similar groups? Churches would certainly be glad to help, and the newspapers ought to get behind such a drive. As you point out, you can't forbid Junior his penny dreadful. Won't work any more than forbidding Junior's mother and father to take a drink. Prohibition is a bad principle. The answer, of course, is education. Junior must be taught to like something better than the comic books. This won't happen until the biggest salaries in our land go to the teachers instead of to movie actors and radio speechmakers. Teaching is the highest profession a man or a woman can aspire to. And since we live under a profit system, the highest profits ought to go to the best people in the most important job, and the most important job is teaching. When you hear somebody ask whatever happened to Mary Smith and the answer comes back, poor Mary, she seems so promising, but she never amounted to anything after all. She's a teacher, she's teaching school. That's all wrong. The answer ought to be, oh, Mary, she really made good. She's the pride of the family and the big breadwinner. She's teaching school. As to the juvenile delinquency, Mrs. Izell, I really don't know. I frankly find it hard to believe that a dime novel ever turned a kid into a Jesse James. I think there's juvenile delinquency because we aren't giving young people enough good and fruitful things to do outside of school hours. And because school itself is too often not a place for preparation, preparation for life, but an empty distributor of facts, most of which are made to seem quite useless and some of which are. The vital statistics of juvenile delinquency, the prime causes like bad housing and so on, are too well known for mention here. Maybe we grown-ups who are supposed to be running the world, keeping the whole works going till our children are ready to take over, are falling down on the job. Maybe from the young people's eye view, this is a pretty uncertain and insecure place to grow up in, this spinning globe of potential atomic ash. Maybe, Mrs. Izell, the delinquency is ours. And... 
Frankly, Mrs. Cizel, I can't leave this scandal of the comic books without a word of praise for the comic strips, the good ones, I mean. And these include the benignly documentary Gasoline Alley, the socially conscious Joe Palooka, and the wholesomely picturesque Prince Valiant. Personally, I'm a pushover for an adventure strip called Terry and the Pirates. And the day is blank and dreary without it, I can tell you. Indeed, when my government, my movie studio, sent me off to South America for a sabbatical year of goodwill ambassadorship, I found it necessary for my happiness that Terry be clipped out of the stateside papers and forwarded down to me in the jungle and the pampas and whatever. You either go for comic strips or run away from them. But however you feel about the darn things, let me urge you, Mrs. Ezell, to sample Terry for a while. It's drawn and plotted with high skill, and the people who live in it are perfectly marvelous. And although you wouldn't care about that, the girls are, well, they're wonderful. But this doesn't go for the current heroine, Fob Cobb. In my view, she's an unintentional sister of hotshot Charlie. As far as I'm concerned, Miss Fob Cobb can perish in the snows of North China, where she's presently wandering in a horse blanket and a money belt. I am also crazy for the delectable burlesque of Mr. Al Cap's Lil Abner. And you'd better know the whole truth, Mrs. Ezell. I never miss Dick Tracy. I don't really like Dick Tracy, but then I don't really like peanuts, and I cannot resist them. Turning now from the comic section to the front pages... Since Mr. Truman inherited the leadership of our nation and in the most crucial term in its history, he seems to have been making a specialty of picking little men for big jobs. Of all the president's poor choices, none is poorer than jolly George Allen, including even John Snyder, who doesn't believe in the reconversion program he's supposed to direct. Allen, court jester to the kitchen cabinet and good friend to the big corporations, is getting his appointment to boss RFC's 10 to $15 billion without having to answer anything like the kind of policy questions fired last year at Henry Wallace. Those who would fight Allen are Wallace men, and therefore Icky's men, Roosevelt Democrats such as are still left in Washington, and they're too busy fighting another presidential pal, oil millionaire Ed Pauley. What about Pauley? Five reliable witnesses under oath have called him five varieties of liar. Maybe they were lying. I wouldn't know about that. I do know that Pauly's an able executive, a nice guy, and a good friend of mine. According to one school of political morality, that means I should stand by him when he's in trouble. Well, if Ed Pauly's ever in personal trouble, I will stand by him. But I won't stand still for his appointment as Undersecretary of the Navy. The Navy wants oil reserves in the huge offshore deposits in California. Ickes wanted federal conservation of that national wealth. Pauly wants to give jurisdiction of the oil beneath the ocean and in the tidelands to the states. California, the most important, is Pauly's state. He admits he went into politics there to elect the kind of state legislature he, as head of the independent oil companies, could do business with. I don't want that kind of business done by anybody in the cabinet. Ed Pauly raised a lot of money for the Democratic Party, some of which, by the way, paid for some of my radio speeches in the last campaign. Not for that reason, but because he's smart and strong-minded, I agree with the man we both, in vastly different degrees, helped elect to the vice presidency. I agree that Ed Pauly deserved and can fill a good job in government. But nothing remotely connected with oil. No, thank you. Mr. Harry Truman says, yes, thank you. Beginning with his stubborn loyalty to his reprehensible boss, Prendergast, Mr. Truman has been striking firm and determined attitudes in the defense of his friends. I wish he could be just as firm and determined in the defense of issues, the FEPC, for instance. I wish that staunch and angry loyalty could be given in the same generous measure to the program he's sworn to support. 
Well, what a good friend Ed Pauley's chances now. Harold Ickes doesn't fight with a pea shooter. And last week he leveled some pretty heavy cannon at the White House. When the smoke clears, what'll be left? It's anybody's guess. Administration big shots are huddled in emergency conferences today, and they're telling each other, this can't hurt us much. The best bet on their strategy is that an outright liberal be put up for Ickey's job. Republicans, of course, feel Ickey's did them nothing but good this week and lots of it, and some Democrats think the old curmudgeon betrayed his party. Others believe that any betrayal was by Truman, who should have stuck by the difficult but great Secretary of the Interior instead of to the affable oil man. Truman has reestablished the Wartime Wage Stabilization Board, but he hasn't established any formula for wage price adjustments, and that's the heart of all differences between labor and management. But if the executive order is vague, the new stabilization administrator, Chester Bowles, is not. He's a good man, and so is Paul Porter, who's the president's put up for Bowles' former position as head of OPA. So, it turns out Truman's appointments aren't all bad, and neither is the news. Our State Department tied up the Nazi Guild of Argentina's dictator Perón in a neat blue paper. That news is fine. More good news is that tomorrow, 125,000 U.S. steelworkers are going back to their jobs with a wage increase of 18 and a half cents an hour. Everything's going up. Wages a little and prices a little less, we hope. If Truman stops Snyder from stopping bowls, we may be able to hold this new bulge in the old price line without letting it burst. We hope. A word from London, but first, your attention, please, for an interesting announcement. In telling you about Lear Home Radios, I always try to emphasize the word home. Because up to now, the name Lear has been known best for aircraft radios, which Lear has been making since way back in 1930. But now the name Lear is on fine home radios. So you can have a make of radio that only flyers got before. Some Lear home radios will have television. Some will have an entirely new remote tuning control. Some will have the new sound-on-tape recording. There will be FM and shortwave on a worldwide scale. And here's a surprise. With all this, Lear home radios are not high-priced. A handsome console combination with every feature, including television, runs about $500. And down at the other end of the list, a trim, capable table model sells at the $19.95 level. But just remember this. No matter what you pay, you're going to agree with us that you get the most for your money with Lear. L-E-A-R. Now, back to Orson Welles, whose views and opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent those of Lear Incorporated. In London... The tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings and the foreign correspondents depart. What was it all about, Daddy? Well, son, the Russians and the British kept calling each other nasty names and making up and shaking hands and calling each other some more nasty names. Nothing came of it. British troops are still in Greece and Russian troops are still in Iran. Russia lost the last round over Java, and the first meeting of the United Nations Council came to an end as T.S. Eliot prophesied the end of the world, not with a bang, but a whimper, or perhaps more accurately, not with a bang, but a veto. The minutes look like our own congressional record after a bad session. Of course, the government of the United States has weathered quite a passel of bad sessions, and maybe, just maybe, the government of the United Nations can survive bad sessions too, but there's a difference. 
The states, the senators and congressmen represent, function under a federal government backed up by an army. Until all nations are placed under the check of a global federation backed up by its own army, Joe Stalin and Joe Patterson and G.I. Joe and all the Joes in this worried world are quite right to be afraid that war may come again. Not with a whimper, but a bang. As the UNO glumly packed its bags in London today, the U.S. started something called Brotherhood Week. With the anti-discrimination FEPC bill moldering in its grave, it seems a little early to celebrate. Until we're willing to make laws against race hate, all the fine speeches like this one are merely good intentions. So many paving blocks on the road to the literal living hell of fascism. On the eve of Brotherhood Week, the Senators Wheeler and Johnson opened the America First campaign of 46 with radio blasts against the British loan. We seem to have heard it before, but the Senators are saying again that our neighbor's troubles are no business of ours. On this Sabbath, which opens a week dedicated to brotherhood, we can't help but remember the first brothers who ever lived in the world it came to pass, you may recall, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, goodbye for now. Please let me come to call again. Thanks for this time. Until then, speaking for my sponsors, the makers of Lear Radio, the radio we give you, if you send us a letter we can use on this program. I remain, as always, very literally and very sincerely, obediently yours. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company.